We open with a word of prayer and ask God's uh, blessing on us. Uh, Heavenly Father, we're thankful for every occasion to give attention to the scriptures and their application in our lives and uh, uh, what it means. And uh, pray that would prosper our faith and awaken us all the more to the majesty of our great God who saved us by divine power and for uh, his own glory and prosperous in these thoughts uh, for thy kingdom's sake and name of Christ we pray amen a um, couple of uh, quick um, uh, notes uh, before we start um, keep in mind uh, having finished of course redemption accomplished and applied that the relationship in terms of the of the uh, the chapters uh, are in many respects uh, logical uh, and not necessarily temporal. Uh, uh, the, the, the point I draw from the logical relationship is one of cause and effect. Um, uh, God is the cause of our new birth. Now, if you look at the passages in, in Gospel of John, John 1.13, John 3, of course, uh, we were born of God. Uh, it does not say we were born of God and our human cooperation. It says we were born of God. So that regeneration is entirely uh, a divine event. It, 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 it is an act of sovereign creation. No less than Genesis 1.1. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We weren't even there. Uh, the author of the new creation is, is, uh, uh, is our Savior. He causes it. Now, there are effects in our lives, and that's, you know, uh, you know that's faith and repentance and uh, justification, sanctification. Uh, we do not participate, as you know, in our, in our uh, justification. That's solely a work of Christ. Uh, uh, we are justified by an alien righteousness. Um, uh, but when you think about... Um, uh, uh, the logical relationship, you might question the temporal world. You know, when do these things occur? Uh, I like the metaphor of, uh, uh, of an automobile. So obviously the engine's driving the wheels. Wheels sometimes have spokes, sometimes they have hubcaps. When, uh, when the wheel is moving, uh, the hubcap is moving too. Okay. Is the hubcap driving the wheel? No. But they're moving simultaneously. Uh, uh, but the wheel is, the engine's causing, uh, but let's just say the wheel is, is causing the hubcap to move. Uh, so there's a cause-effect relationship. Uh, I just remind you that uh, it's, it's not the hubcap uh, that's driving the wheel. It's the other way around. So when we're regenerated, uh, we automatically have faith instantaneously uh, because we believe, have faith in God and trust Christ as our Savior. It's not a causative event. Uh, regeneration, new birth is causative, uh, but it is the effect of the new birth. Uh, um, uh, the reason I stress that is because in the different systems of theology, and keep in mind, part of, uh, part of the point of this course is to teach you different systems. Uh, if you understand the systems of semi-Pelagianism and Arminianism uh, and um, 
uh, let's just say, Reformed theology, uh, if someone tells you they're in a minute, you know exactly what they believe. You know exactly how they're going to interpret verses because you know their system. Okay? Um, uh, uh, one of the important effects of the new birth is uh, sometimes described as definitive sanctification where uh, Christ uh, breaks... Um, the rule of sin over us. So it's no longer our master. Yeah, yeah, we still sin, and we're going to still sin, but, but it's no longer our master. The natural man, that's all he knows. It drives his life because it has dominion over him. Uh, the world, the devil, the flesh control him. Uh, he doesn't sense it in his life, but it just a, it's a controlling reality. It's the governing authority of his life. Uh, when we are born again, the governing authority of our life transfers from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And he sets us apart uh, definitively by breaking that dominion and then progressively by beginning to work a righteousness inherently our own. And we call that sanctification. Okay. Uh, and and uh, uh, those events have to occur because they're the product of the new birth. Okay? Cause, effect. So, it, it, you know, you, uh, you might sometime, you know, in a year or so, say, I'm going I'm to reread John Murray. Uh, it's a worthwhile read. That, that is, to me, a, a Christian classic uh, in terms of the theology of, of, uh, of, uh, of our salvation and our salvation taken in a real broad sense. Uh, uh, I discuss in, 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 in the book Smooth Words uh, the issues very clearly, I think, of justification and sanctification. And again, different systems confuse those two. Um, essentially, you know, Roman Catholics, for example, put sanctification before justification, so they invert the order. Uh, now, why do I say, you know, why, do, why am I sharing these things? Uh, uh, one of the uh, one of the reasons is is uh, uh, if you will the underlying themes of smooth words is that deception has come into the church that creates for us I believe a very distinctive uh, opportunity to share the gospel within the church. Um, um, for example, Daniel 12, I believe it's 3, uh, uh, there's a group of men who lead many to righteousness. And, and, and who they're leading are their own covenant people. They're leading them back to righteousness because a deceiver uh, is in their midst. Uh, so, so don't be oblivious to the fact when you're talking to people and they say, oh, I'm a, I mean, I'm a Christian. Uh, try to, you know, flesh out what that means. I always ask people, why, you know, uh, how do you define that? How do you define what a Christian is? Uh, if, if they say things like, well, you know, you just, you, you just become a good person. Well, there's an opportunity to witness because only Christ is good. And you can only be saved <laughs> by, by Him. 
Uh, and we, uh, we need to be aware of that because uh, there are a lot of people who've been deceived. Not, not outsiders, not people outside the church. They're, we know they've been deceived. Satan is, is the great deceiver. But I'm talking about within the church. And, and, uh, and the danger in the American church is the rapid decline in theology, the rapid decline in caring about doctrine leads to deception. I mean, so ignorant people are pretty easy to deceive. And, and, uh, and I don't say that as a jest. I don't say it out of pride. I just say it as that's really a danger, really, to the American church. Uh, because we, uh, we don't place any emphasis on theology or doctrine. Uh, quite frankly, most people don't care. They just want to get their ticket punched. So, uh, anyway, um, five points of Calvinism. Okay, did, did Calvin write five points in his theology? Well, no. Thank you, Joanne. Yeah, no, he didn't. Uh, uh, five points comes from the Synod of Dort. Okay. So, 17th century, there was a controversy in the Dutch church. In those days, unlike our own, tragically speaking, when there were controversies, the church would call councils to, to, to hammer out the controversy. Uh, there were the Reformed people and there were the followers of Jacob Arminius. That's where the phrase Arminianism comes from. Jacob Arminius was a Dutch theologian within the church. Uh, but, he, but he began to waver uh, he began to redefine um, um, Reformed theology. So there's this controversy that's flushed. The church meets. The result of the meeting uh, of the church is the Synod of Dort. And the Synod of Dort develops the five points. Okay? Uh, most easily known by uh, the acrostic tulip. Total depravity. You, unconditional election. L, limited atonement. I prefer particular redemption. Uh, as you know, because both sides, Arminians and Calvinists, limit the atonement. Calvinists limit um, the extent of the atonement for whom Christ died. Arminians limit the nature of the atonement. Um, it wasn't really an, an, a totally effective purchase price on the cross. We have to supplement it with our faith. So, so both sides limit the atonement. Don't let people castigate you. Well, you you know you limit the atonement. How bad is that? Well, the Armenians limit it too. Yeah. Uh, so T U L I is irresistible grace. The Spirit of God irresistibly begins to draw us, and then P perseverance of the saints. Uh, uh, and and and. Perseverance really, in my mind, has two parts to it. Um, uh, in my mind, perseverance is a subset of the doctrine of sanctification. Okay. Uh, because the Spirit is sanctifying us progressively over time, we're going to persevere in the faith. Not Never means perfection. It only means uh, persevering in the faith over time and in degree. Uh, we don't do perfection until Christ comes in glory to glorify us. 
in his second coming. Um, uh, the flip side of perseverance is assurance. Okay? Is, is assurance. Uh, that we know we're secure because Christ saved us and he never loses anyone that he saves. And so we can have the assurance that, that we are um, the sons of God and that we will never come in and out of that relationship. Uh, as you know, Arminianism and Roman Catholicism or uh, Orthodoxy, uh, they really can't have assurance. Uh, because in the final analysis, it's up to them. They've got to be good enough. Uh, Roman Catholicism also has the doctrine of uh, uh, purgatory that's not found in the scriptures. Uh, so, um, but um, uh, assurance belongs to those persevering in the faith. Okay. Um, so, uh, just keep in mind the five points is really a product of the sin of the door. I think, doesn't Palmer have a historical section in here? Um, He doesn't. But sometimes Reformation Bibles will have. Of course, if you have a, if you know, just Google the Synod of Dort. I mean, you, it's all laid out for you. Uh, here again, that is another. Uh, uh, that is another critical element in your Christian faith. Uh, Americans, uh, American Christians, have no care whatsoever about church history. Okay. To their danger. So we, we, we care about church history. That's why um, I'm always linking the beliefs of Grace Bible Church uh, to the Reformers and ultimately the Scriptures. Uh, so, so we care about uh, the history of doctrine. We care about things that happened, uh, say, in the Dutch church um, because we don't, want to make, we don't want to make their mistakes. Okay? So that's one of the reasons we study history. I mean, I, uh, I don't want to make a mistake that uh, some, some churches have made. And so history can be sometimes a protection for us. So shame on the American church. I mean, we think we're above it all. I, I, don't, I don't need history. I don't, but, but that, I mean, that's the way to deception. So uh, uh, anyway, um, uh, let's, uh, let's begin with total, total depravity. And uh, if you might want to stand, use the microphone. Okay. Yes, should be on. Hello. Is that right? Uh, you might really want to stand and just hold it, uh, unless your lovely wife wants to be your microphone stand. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Face the. Uh, Good. Yeah. Yeah, you might want to face this. Okay, good. All right. Uh, total depravity. It's not absolute depravity. Absolute depravity means a person expresses his depravity to the nth degree at all times. He is as vicious as possible. Total depravity is that nothing he does is good. The Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 91, what are good works? The answer is, 
only those which are done from true faith according to the law of God and to his glory. Three elements make up truly good works. One, true faith in Jesus Christ. Two, conformity to God's law. Three, proper motive or uh, glory to God. Thus, non-Christians can do relatively good works even though they are totally depraved. Example, Christ gives an example in Luke 6.33. And if you do good to them, non-believers, that you do good to you, what reward do you have? For even sinners do the same. That is a relatively a relative good. Total depravity means that natural man is never able to do any good that is fundamentally pleasing to God and in fact does evil all the time. Uh, Genesis 6, 5 uh, tells us that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God says in Genesis 8, 21 that the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 51, 5, Behold, I was shapen in inequity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Isaiah 64, 6, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Paul quotes from Psalm 14 and 53 in Romans 3, uh, eight, uh, I'm sorry, 10 through 18. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all gone astray. Together they have become worthless. There is no one who does good. No, not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Man does not do a single work that is thoroughly pleasing to God. Another way to describe total depravity is total inability. Man cannot do good. In Matthew 7, 16 through 18, Jesus says, You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. In John 15, 4, 15, 4 through 5, Jesus is speaking and says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Paul also tells us in Romans 8, 7 through 8, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. For even if it is, even if it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Without God, man cannot understand good. In Acts 16.14, Lydia heard Paul preach at the riverside in Philippi. Only after the Lord opened her heart was she able to understand. We read in Acts 16.14, And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And in John 8, 
43, Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, asks, Why do you not understand what I am saying? He answers them, and he says, It is because you cannot hear my word. Also, after speaking to the multitudes in Matthew, the disciples ask Jesus why he spoke in parables. He answers them in Matthew 13, 13 through 14. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but not understand, and you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. If man is not regenerated, he cannot understand. He must be born again. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Man cannot desire the good. This inability to desire good, and especially Jesus, is expressed by Jesus in John 6.44. He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Again, Jesus says in John 6, 65, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Not just some cannot, but none can come. That's total inability. In Ezekiel eleven nineteen, the unregenerate are described as having a heart of stone. <clears throat> I say, and I say, no, I'm sorry, and I shall give them one heart and shall put a new spirit within them, and I shall take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Jesus said in John 3.3, speaking to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So, just like a baby from conception to birth has no control in the process, Likewise, the unbeliever cannot take on the step toward his rebirth. He must be gener- regenerated by the Spirit. John 3, 5 through 8, <clears throat> Jesus answers Nicodemus' questions on how he can either, how, no one, how one can enter into his mother's room to be born again. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. In a similar fashion, an unbeliever can either take one step toward his rebirth. He must be generated by the spirit. Arminianism teaches that spiritual non-being can desire to be born, can believe on Christ and then be born again. Non-being or nothingness can never produce itself. The very concept of creation necessarily implies total passivity and inability on the part of the object that is to be created. What is true in the physical realm is also true in the spiritual realm. Individuals are totally unable to make themselves new creations in Christ. 
Paul says in Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Then in verse uh, 4 and 5, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. <clears throat> so three points. One, total depravity explains the troubles in our world. Romans 3, uh, 10 through 18. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the paths of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Number two, a knowledge of total depravity should also teach us that we are thoroughly bad and in a terrible state of affairs unless God helps us. Number three, a knowledge of total depravity will teach a person that if he has a desire to ask God to help him, it is only because it is God who is working within him to will and do according to his good pleasure. In Philippians 2, 12 and 13, <clears throat> uh, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Very good. Uh, thanks for uh, the definition of uh, Reformed faith as well as uh, the Arminian faith. Keep in mind that uh, uh, one of the major tenets of total depravity is that because of the fall in Genesis 3, sin affects everything about a human being. Uh, first and foremost, the guilt of Adam's sin is imputed to everyone that's ever been born. So he's, he's born guilty. Okay? There's no stage of innocence. Born guilty. Uh, uh, but the effects of sin in term, terms of the way he thinks, the way he feels, the way he operates is is uh, 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 is affected by sin, uh, hence total. Uh, good distinction between total and absolute. Uh, everyone's totally depraved, but you know there are very few Adolf Hitlers in the world. But uh, obviously they're around. Um, uh, so uh, my application to you is. Uh, you don't have to have some great anxiety attack when you're trying to share the faith with someone. Because you can't save them anyway. Your job is just to tell them the gospel. Only the Spirit of God can take that <laughs> and, and use it uh, if He wills to use it. Um, uh, so, um, to me, it, 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 it's a real blessing to understand that theology when you're sharing the gospel with someone. Any, anybody have any quick questions or uh, okay unconditional election? Here, let me have the. Uh. Um, 
I want to start off by reading Ephesians 1, <clears throat> 3 through 10. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace, that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding, and he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head even Christ the author of our book um, Edwin Palmer states that Election understood biblically is perhaps the finest, warmest, most joyous teaching in the Bible. And isn't that humbling? Because we ask, why me? There's absolutely nothing in me that is worthy of Christ's great sacrifice. And yet, God purposed from all eternity to choose to elect some for salvation. What is election? Divine election is God's choosing some to go to heaven, while others are passed by. Those will go to hell. Divine election is always an unconditional election. God never bases his choice on who man is or what man thinks says or does so how does God choose well we don't know but it is not anything that is in man and isn't that wonderful if it were based on these things who would ever be saved because we're totally depraved Ephesians 2 5 tells us we are all dead in our sins and trespasses and Romans 3.10 tells us that there is no one righteous, not even one. If God's election were based on even one single good thing that is to be found in us, then no one would be elected. Praise God for his unconditional election. The Arminians believe as we do in the triune God, in Christ's deity and his substitutionary death on the cross. However, they believe in conditional election. They believe God foresees who will believe in Christ and he chooses them for salvation. Man chooses God and then God chooses man. This is not what scripture teaches us. It teaches us that man is dead and incapable of doing anything. <clears throat> It is only when the Holy Spirit regenerates us and makes us alive spiritually can we have faith in Christ to be saved. 
the decision as to which people will be saved rests entirely on God's choice. Nothing man does. In John 15, 16, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And in John 6, 37 and 39, Jesus says that all the Father gives me will come to me, and I will lose none of all he has given me. This is unconditional election. It is true that the Christian chooses Christ, but it is the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, enabling us to believe, to have faith. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 tells us that it is God working in us both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Luke tells us in Acts 13, 48, that as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And in Thessalonians 2.13, Paul tells us that God loved us because in the beginning he chose us for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith and truth. Paul states, For whom God foreknew, he also foreordained, to be conformed to the image of his Son. And whom he foreordained, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Foreknew is a Hebrew and Greek idiom meaning loved beforehand. So those whom God loved beforehand, he foreordained. Paul tells us there's a golden chain of salvation that begins with the eternal electing love of God and goes on in unbreakable lengths through foreordination, effectual calling, justification, to the final glorification in heaven. Foreordination of the believer is based on God's eternal love. God does not elect people because of something in them that attracts God, but how can the Israelites, who were called God's chosen people, be spiritually lost? God chose Isaac over Ishmael, and he chose Jacob over Esau, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. As God told Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Exodus 33:19 Salvation is not by our works but of God who calls us and that election is unconditional As Christians we rejoice that God saved us in understanding unconditional election we praise him that he would never have that we would never have loved him unless he first loved us that would never have that we would never have chosen him unless he had first chosen us. And by the Holy Spirit, we never would have been re regenerated and given faith to believe, saving faith for all eternity. The reading of the verses, um, just uh, obviously that's, that's our ultimate authority. Um, appreciate the distinction between unconditional election and conditional election. God chooses us because he, he knows something about us or 
something that we're going to do again. So that just totally really destroys the concept of election. Um, uh, for the most part, uh, totally rejected in the American church scene today. Uh, people um, just reject predestination, reject unconditional election, even though I think certainly in the reading of these verses, um, it's fairly clear that uh, uh, the Bible uh, propounds these doctrines. Um, uh, be careful, you know, by way of application when you speak with people, uh, you're not going to argue anyone into, into these positions. Just read the Bible to them and say, well, you, you figure it out, you know. Uh, Ephesians 1, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. We weren't even around then. We weren't even present to have faith then. So you connect the dots. Uh, but, but again, you can't, um, you can't argue someone unless God put, turns the light switch on. And, and so really that's your, uh, you know, it, it's important to explain these doctrines to people. Um, but don't try to convince anyone. Just say, look, let's go to the Bible. Do you believe the Bible? God, you know, uh, uh, even if they don't, let's go to the Bible and see what Christians believe that comes from the Bible. Uh, we don't make these things up. Uh, the Synod of Dort didn't, didn't make up the five points. They're just in the Scriptures. They just synthesized them and brought them together. And, and again, it was a historic event to combat the remonstrance who were following an errant theologian, Jacob Arminius. His students, uh, uh, he had died, but his students were uh, uh, carrying on his, his theology. So, uh, um, uh, the, 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 the other application I, w I would make for you, uh, for you uh, particularly um, those of you who have young children, don't hesitate to teach them these doctrines. Because I believe that's what keeps them uh, from being deceived and from falling prey. Uh, when a child is taught, and, and, can, and, and certainly again, um, take them to the Scriptures, uh, but when they learn that the Bible teaches that God is absolutely and totally sovereign, I believe that's a, a measure of protection for that child. Um, you know, I mean, just think about it. Um, I can't sin because God knows. You know, uh, for example. So, um, one of the one of the things I love about systematic theology is its protection against the wiles of the devil. Um, quick, quick historic uh, fact, because it oftentimes comes uh, comes up, and uh, when you. Uh, have occasion to speak to people about these doctrines um, is, is people will point to uh, corruptions uh, or, th or they think they are corruptions. For example, uh, when, when John Calvin was in Geneva, he was a spiritual ruler. Okay? And he, had no, he had no rule over civil life. Okay? Civil authorities and governors and governors rule over civil life. 
uh, spiritual rulers rule and govern over the spiritual life. Anyway, there was a heretic that came to town, came to Geneva by the name of Servetus. Uh, and he was a very dangerous heretic. Um, he was arrested by the civil authorities. Church can't arrest anybody. Civil authorities arrested him, threw him in jail. There was a trial. Um, and uh, he, was, he was killed. People say, look, Calvin was a murderer. Calvin agreed with the sentence of the civil governors, but he had no authority to put someone to death. He didn't, he didn't I mean, again, that's a civil issue. It's a civil matter. So the civil authorities arrested, and Calvin would have agreed with it, don't misunderstand me, arrested him and had him put to death because, uh, because they saw heresy as a danger. Now think about that in terms of where we are today. We dance with heresy in America. It's like, oh, this is wonderful. No, we're not aware of it. But we don't think in those terms. We ought to think in those terms. Uh, but they saw heresy as the ultimate threat. You know, re remember the words of Jesus. Uh, don't fear the one who can kill the body. Fear the one that can kill the soul. And a heretic can kill the soul. Uh, and, of course, so does, you know, the devil and on and on. And, and, and so does God because he's going to affect eternal judgment. So um, that's why I would encourage you, if you ever have occasion, uh, you want to read some church history, um, you know, you might Google some different books or you could, you know, ask me. There may, uh, there are some good historical books in our, in our small library. Um, one of the uh, histories I would encourage you to read, very much so, uh, are, are Christian biographies. Uh, biographies on guys like Jonathan Edwards or Charles Spurgeon. Because you're going to find out there were men and women just like you. They struggled, they, were, they got depressed, they, you know, uh, but they trusted God. So to me, those histories like that are very, very meaningful and very, very helpful. You can also learn about what was going on in the times. The battles that Spurgeon was writing, for example, uh, 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 pardon me, fighting in uh, the 19th century in England, the same battles we're fighting today, particularly against Arminianism. Uh, so, um, um, you know, be aware of the importance of doctrine, be aware of the importance of church history. Uh, so these were very, very good, very, very good presentations. I, I thank you for condensing the material. So next week we will do particular redemption. Who's up? Okay, good. And uh, um, uh, irresistible grace. Who's doing irresistible? Okay, Jose, thank you. So uh, uh, good, uh, good studies again. You know, twelve, thirteen minutes, uh, particularly to take us to verses, because that's that's our ultimate and final authority. Uh, any quick questions or comments before we close in order? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, 
so Ganora brings up a very excellent point. Um, I'll, I'll try to answer his question. Uh, essentially, his question is, uh, can you talk about uh, the inherent unity in each of these separate points to the whole? Okay, and 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 the point is, uh, they are all inextricably bound together. So if you unravel one, you're going to eventually unravel them all. Um, you know, uh, that's why if you have a loose thread, be very careful about pulling on it, because uh, it may do a lot of damage to the garment you're trying to wear. Uh, each of these points are inseparably, separably linked together. Um, now, uh, the importance of that in our culture is there's a lot of people that will tell you, well, I am a four-point Calvinist. Well, there's no such thing as a four-point Calvinist. You either hold to five points or you really don't hold to any of them. Uh, for example, why, why would Jesus Christ die on the cross and effect a particular redemption for someone uh, that the Father did not elect any to, from eternity past. That, that makes no sense. Okay. Why would the Spirit irresistibly draw someone whom Christ did not die for? So again, you can just think in your own mind how, the, I mean, they are literally inextricably linked together. Uh, the one people struggle over the most is particular redemption or limited atonement. Uh, because we have been inundated throughout our lives, we hear it all the time, Christ died for everyone. Now it's up to you. What are you going to do? Um, but I, I, I make no bones about telling people that Christ died for sinners and you're a sinner. Whether he died for you, I don't know. And I, I very rarely ever share that. I share the first part, Christ died for sinners, you're a sinner. Uh, but I never tell someone Christ died for you. I never tell someone God loves you. Because I don't know. And the reason I don't is not because I'm being mean, nasty old theologian. It's I don't want to give false assurance to someone. If God, if I'm a sinner, which I am, uh, but let's say I'm not a Christian. You tell me God loves me and Jesus died for me. I'm going to extrapolate that in my own twisted logic to say, he won't send me to hell. He loves me. He's, he's going to... Yeah. So I'm just very careful. Uh, and to me, theology matters when you're sharing the gospel. Does that make sense? You know? Um, um, I don't want to soften the work of, of the Spirit who has to convict people by telling them and giving them falsehoods. Um, I, believe, I believe God the Father loves all the elect. Uh, and rejects all others. Uh, Romans 9, Jacob I loved, Esau I rejected. Uh, you know, people get angry at that. But think about it. Just take them to Romans 9. Does God love Esau? Scriptures are very clear. Did God love Judas? Of whom Jesus said better that that man had never been born. So think about it. Did he love Adolf Hitler? I don't think so. So anyway, 
Uh, they are they are bound together. They are a complete whole. Uh, typically, uh, evangelical theologians cut a few pieces out of the pie and say, I believe these things. And then they do something that uh, uh, I always makes me mad. They want to say, I'm Reformed. Well, again, um, I don't I don't get emotionally upset and try to engage in a great argument, but um, you have to be very careful of labels. It's not the labels, the content of the label. Okay. Um, so, um, it's a very, very good question. Um, and, and, and you might think of internal contradictions, because keep in mind, the truth, truth is, lo- truth is always logical, and it's always consistent. If it's illogical and inconsistent, it's not truth. Uh, and the scriptures are consistent and, of course, logical. Okay, let's close quickly in a word of prayer. Uh, Father, thank Thee for this hour of the two presentations. Uh, bless uh, the presentations to come to our edification, to our praise of the great God in heaven uh, for sending His Son to redeem us and sending the Spirit to rescue us uh, from our own uh, spiritual condition and from the lostness of the world in which we live. And may we uh, feel a sense of uh, indebtedness uh, to the greatness of God and therefore live for His glory. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.